The following message was given by Joel Shorey, the senior pastor at Redeemer Fellowship Church in Newark, Delaware, and a guest preacher at Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. It is a joy to be with all of you. Uh, first time being able to visit all of you since you have planted Uh, But we want you to know this is not the first time that we've thought of you. We have thought and prayed for you as a church family many, many times before now. We love our partnership in Sovereign Grace. We love the good work that God is doing here. Having just been in the church planning season of life for the last four and a half years, uh, we know what is involved in it all. Uh, and as grateful as we are for leaders like, like Nick and Jeff and Tom and Luke, uh, we know how much work they are doing. We know that it extends far beyond the leadership team. Uh, we know that many of you are working tirelessly uh, in order to uh, establish this local church and to build it up in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So thank you. Thank you for your faithful labors and for your partnership in the gospel. We love you. We thank God for you. We are praying for you regularly. It's a joy to be able to preach God's word to you. So if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open them now with me to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2 at Redeemer Fellowship. Uh, We just started a a year-long sermon series in this remarkable book. If you're not familiar with your Bibles, it's the second book in the Bible, close to the beginning. Uh, At Redeemer Fellowship, we've already considered chapter 1, where we learn about 400 years of slavery for God's people and the extraordinary suffering that they experienced in that. In the first 10 verses of chapter 2, we see the the heroism of some amazing women of God and how they they were used by God to preserve little Moses' life and how uh, God sovereignly controlled circumstances and gave courage to Moses' parents in order to put him in a basket, entrusting him to the care of the Lord and how he was brought into Pharaoh's house. I imagine that many of you are familiar with this story. Today, we're going to consider the second half of chapter 2. And so if you would, please read along with me verses 11 to the end of the chapter. It says this, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. 
And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Some of you might know how much I, like many pastors, love to read books. In fact, there were several years when Kyung Lee and I had a competition as to who could read the most books within a calendar year. He won most years, but I think there was one year when I actually won, and it felt good because Kyung's so good at everything. Whenever you beat him in something, you have to rub it in a little bit. That year was full of reading books, classic books. I love to read history. I love to read theology. I love to read much of the classic literature that is out there. Classic literature such as Dr. Seuss's Oh, the Places You Will Go. Kyung didn't know that I won by reading just a ton of these books. (laughs) Got to do what you got to do. But friends, this right here is... A gem of a book, okay, marked by the doctor's typical energy and unexpected turns, each page a new adventure in itself, mixed with refreshing humor and poignant truth along the way. It is truly a masterpiece. I'm not sure if you've read this book, because we do live in a woefully illiterate age after all, but if you haven't, let me bring you into the wonder of Dr. Seuss. This masterpiece begins with these words, which really can be compared to some of the masterful opening lines of authors like Dickens and Melville and Orwell. This masterpiece begins with these moving words. Congratulations, today is your day. You're off to great places, you're off and away. Doesn't that move you in your soul? just so good. But wait, there's more. He keeps pulling us into this world of amazement with these thoughtful reflections. He says, you have brains in your head, you have feet in your shoes, you can steer yourself any direction you choose. You're on your own and you know what you know and you are the guy who'll decide where to go. Now there are some theological concerns there with his anthropology, but you can't argue with the poetical brilliance. And he continues to paint a picture of hope. He says, out there things can happen and frequently do to people as brainy and footsy as you. And when things start to happen, don't worry, don't stew, just go right along. You'll start happening too. Oh, the places you'll go, you'll be on your way, you'll see great sights, you'll join the high flyers who soar to high heights. Dr. Seuss is preaching this morning. He is promising great things. But then, with such powerful literary foreshadowing, he acknowledges the reality of pain along the way. He says, wherever you fly, you'll be the best of the best. Wherever you go, you will top all the rest. But then he says, except when you don't, because sometimes you won't. 
I'm sorry to say so, but sadly it's true that bang-ups and hang-ups can happen to you. You can get all hung up in a prickly perch and your gang will fly on. You'll be left in a lurch. Life is not always easy. He says you'll come down from the lurch with an unpleasant bump and the chances are then that you'll be in a slump. Church, does anyone feel as if they are in a slump right now during this season of your life? He says, and when you're in a slump, you're not in for much fun. Unslumping yourself is not easily done. Listen to what he says. He says, you'll come to a place where the streets are not marked. Some windows are lighted, but mostly they're dark. A place you could sprain both your elbow and chin. Do you dare to stay out? Do you dare to go in? Being in a slump in life is a hard and and confusing place to be. He says, you can get so confused that you'll start into race down long giggled roads at a breaknecking pace and grind on for miles across weirdest wild space, headed, I fear, to a most useless place. What, what is this useless place? He calls it the waiting place. The waiting place, the place where no one wants to be. He says, for people just waiting, waiting for a train to go or a bus to come or a plane to go or the mail to come or the rain to go or the phone to ring or the snow to snow or waiting around for a yes or a no. Is anyone waiting for a yes or a no from the Lord during this season of your life? I'm just going to skip over the part about waiting for hair to grow. It's not important. (laughs) Dodger says, everyone is just waiting. Friends, according to Dr. Seuss, the waiting place is a bad place to be. And I think most of us here today would agree with him. No one wants to be in that place. In fact, on the very next page, he says, no, that's not for you. Somehow you'll escape all the waiting and staying. You'll find the bright places where boom bands are playing. Clearly, clearly we should want to avoid the waiting place at all costs. Just, Just get out of it. But friends, is it as easy as Dr. Seuss makes it sound? Can we just say no to the waiting place? That's not for me. And just move on from it quickly. No, we can't. We really can't. Waiting is hard and oftentimes in this life, waiting is unavoidable. If it was avoidable, none of us would wait. We would just move on quickly. But in this life, we often wait because there is nothing to do but to wait at times. We can't change our circumstances that we find ourselves in. We can't force the situation to be different. We can try to be faithful in the circumstances, but we often will wait without any change. There is a lot of waiting represented in this room alone. Many of us are in the waiting room of life, waiting for our marriage to change, waiting for God to give us a spouse, waiting for healing. We are waiting for a breakthrough in our career. We are waiting for our children to finally find clarity in life. We're waiting to escape mental illness. We are waiting for chronic pain to end. Maybe you're a student here today in high school and you're you're just waiting for the day when you're an adult and can make choices on your own. We are all waiting, and and none of us like to be in the waiting place. None of us want to be there, but yet here we are. Friends, today we need to talk about waiting. We need to talk about how God's ways are not our ways, and his timing is often not our timing, and we need to. We can be honest with God about the pain and the frustration and sorrow that we feel in the waiting room of life. We can be honest with him, but 
but we also need to consider how hopeful we can be because of how active God is in the midst of our waiting. I don't know half of the waiting sorrow and pain that is represented in this room, but here's what we can all know together this morning. We can know that no matter how much waiting we have done, no matter how much waiting we still will do, the one true and living God remembers us in our waiting. Church, he remembers and he acts on our behalf. If you're taking notes this morning, that the main idea for our sermon is is simply this. In times of waiting, God always remembers. In times of waiting, God always remembers. And we have two simple points. Point number one, we often wait. And point number two, God always remembers. Let's begin with the first one. Point number one, we often wait. You and I, friends, do not live in a culture that likes to wait very much, do we? Waiting is not a popular thing, but but no matter how fast your internet connection may be, no matter how instant your instant cart may feel, no matter how crazy it is that you can order something on Amazon at 9 p.m. at night and wake up to it with it on your door at 6 a.m. in the morning, no matter how fast and convenient this world aims to be, waiting is unavoidable as people, we will often wait. And it may not be for the Amazon delivery, but it will often be for your heart's desires and longings, for your earnest prayers. Amazon cannot hurry up the will of God. Amazon can't give you the spouse that you long for or take away your sickness or heal that relationship or give you the house that you are praying for, the promotion that you've been working towards or the ministry that you long to be a part of. There are certain areas of life that we simply cannot hurry along and sadly these areas are often areas of suffering and pain and sorrow and trial. But as we wait... We must remember that waiting is not uncommon for God's people. It's not uncommon at all, church. In this fallen and broken and and sin-sick world, waiting has, has been a constant experience of God's people from the very beginning of time. Look at our text again this morning. We already know before we began in our text today that the Israelite people have been stuck in Egypt for 400 years. Think about this with me for just a moment. 400, that's 20 generations. Generations upon generations have lived and died in slavery in Egypt, just waiting, longing, pleading for deliverance. They were born into slavery. They grew up in slavery. They had children in slavery. Their children had children in slavery. And then they died in slavery. These these Israelites lived their entire lives waiting, hoping for something from God, but they never experienced it in this life. Centuries of oppression of the worst kind. Their children are being hunted down and brutally killed. They're not allowed to live as God called them to live. This is about as severe as it gets, and it is long. Think about Moses himself. If you read the book of Exodus, you'll notice that these first chapters are, are very fast-paced. We move quickly from one event to the next. But, but if you notice the details of the text, you'll realize that in reality, this is not fast-paced at all. Look at verse 11 again. It says, when Moses had grown up. That feels like a throwaway sentence, but, but think about what it means. Think about how long it takes that little baby put in the basket by his mother to grow into a full man. In Acts chapter 7, we learn from Stephen's speech that Moses was 40 years old when these events in our text today happened. 
And then we find out also from Stephen that, that there's another 40 years until the burning bush happens in chapter 3. So, so from the moment that Moses' mother put him in the basket, entrusting him to the care and direction of the Lord, 80 years has gone by. 80 years. I just turned 40 last month. I can't imagine having spent my entire life in slavery and then having another length of my life spent in slavery waiting. That's a long time. This is crazy. They were waiting year after year after year with no change. And church, is so important that we see together that this sort of waiting is not uncommon in our own Bibles. No, it's very common. See, the problem, the problem is that you and I often read our Bibles while only looking for the, for the high points in our Bibles, the mountaintop experiences, the, the big moments of deliverance and salvation, which are good to see, but we often forget that there are thousands of years of waiting and suffering represented in the pages of our Bibles, right? Because of sin, because of humanity's rebellion, this world is not as it should be, and so God's people will often wait. Abraham and Sarah received a promise from God in Genesis chapter 12 that they would receive a son, a child which they longed for, but it wasn't until so many years later that God answered that prayer. Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Hannah and Elizabeth, all godly women who longed for a child to be given to them, but they waited in their barrenness. Jacob was mistreated by his uncle Laban for 14 years. Joseph was sold into slavery and sat in a prison cell for years on end before God opened up doors in his life. Nehemiah and Daniel and the people of God waited in exile for decades. Listen, the psalmist regularly prays what so much of many of us feel. Psalm 63, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mires where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. Listen, my eyes grow dim with waiting for my God, the psalmist says. We will often, often wait, and it's not pleasant waiting. Our eyes grow dim in this waiting, right? Not, not all waiting is bad, right? There are some types of waiting that are actually fairly enjoyable. Like if I go to a wedding and there's this nice reception before the meal is served. There's the cocktail hour. Usually I hate to wait for dinner, but not then. Why? Because there's bacon-wrapped scallops being served on a platter. I'll wait all day long. Take your time with those pictures. I'll be over here with the hors d'oeuvres. But friends, that is not the kind of waiting described in our Bibles. Look at our text. It, it's not pleasant. It is unpleasant. It is painful waiting. Chapter 1 has so many words that speak of pain and sorrow. In our text, verse 11, we see the words burden and beating right away. Those are waiting, suffering words. Verse 13, we see the word struggling. Verse 14, we see the presence of fear. Verse 15, we see Pharaoh wanting to kill Moses. Verse 16 and 17, these ladies are driven away by cruel men who want to oppress. When Moses and Zipporah give birth to a son, they give him a name. What is that name? It's called Gershom because he is a sojourner in a foreign land. To be a sojourner is not to be in a place of rest or peace or hope. It is a discouraging place. Verse 23 says that, during those many days, 
During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel, listen to these words, groaned because of their slavery, and and they cried out for help. This is severe suffering. This is hard way. This is not easy. This is waiting with groaning and weeping and lamentations. And listen, it's not just suffering brought upon us by oppressors from the outside. If you look at verse 13, you'll see that the Hebrews are fighting between themselves as well. That's a symbol to us. The suffering sometimes comes from within us as well. We don't need deliverance just from the outside. We need deliverance from within as well. Suffering is coming at us from every angle. And it is common among all God's people, not just in the Bible, but in the church and in our lives today. We are all waiting, either from without or from within. And oftentimes we can feel alone in our suffering. Oftentimes we can begin, can't we, to compare ourselves to other people in their waiting? How come my waiting is so much harder than their waiting? How, much, how come they seem to have an easier time of waiting than we do? You know, recently my family and I went to the dentist and we had our appointments and we, we came out and then I told my kids that the dentist that I went to when I was growing up was so much better than our dentist today, mainly because there was stuff to do in the waiting room. There were games and there were the highlight magazines with the, the picture finders and there were cool videos to watch and all these things. Not in our dentist now. They have no games, no magazines, and their soap operas on TV all day long. It's like the worst kind of experience. But as I was thinking about that, I realized... There's really no good waiting at the dentist, right? You're at the dentist. You're in a room waiting for your name to be called so they can torture you for 30 minutes. There's no good waiting in that place. But friends, we can often look around us and assume that everyone else has a better waiting room in life than we do. That God gave them magazines and and puzzles to play with and things to do while we got stuck watching days of our lives on repeat over and over again. But it's good for us to acknowledge that all of God's people will often wait. And it's, it's painful. Other people's waiting may look different than our own, but they're likely still longing for something just like we are. And they're likely fighting for faith tooth and nail just like we are. What is it for you? Are you waiting for an adult child to finally turn to Jesus? Are you waiting to be free from alcohol or drugs? Are you waiting for the time when you don't need to go to sleep at night wondering if you'll get the call that that loved one has overdosed and died? Are you waiting for singleness to come to an end? Are you waiting for your reputation to be restored? Have you made mistakes and have people gossiped or slandered you and and you're waiting for them to trust you again and it's a lonely place to be? Are you waiting for your finances to shift? Waiting for financial stability, but it continually eludes you? Are you waiting for your unbelieving husband or unbelieving wife to finally come to Jesus, but as you wait, you're in such a lonely place within your home? Are you waiting for when you don't turn on your phone or the TV and find more horrific news of violence all around us? Are you waiting for a child? There are few things in God's word as frequently referenced and as painful as waiting for a child. Are you waiting to be free from sexual temptation, free from same-sex attraction that you battle with for day after day? Dear friends, in this fallen world, we will often wait, and we will often wait a long time. We will feel forlorn. We will feel forgotten. We will feel forsaken. 
We will feel invisible to the world and to the church around us, and many times we'll be tempted to feel and believe that we are invisible to God himself. The enemy of our soul, Satan himself, will whisper in our ears, God does not see you in this place. God does not know about your circumstance. God does not care. But this is when we must allow God's precious word to remind us of the unshakable truth that he is not a God who forgets his people. He's not a God who ignores the plight or the suffering or the sorrows of his people. Friends, that brings us to our second point. Christians will often wait, but God always remembers. He'll always remember. Have you ever felt ghosted by someone? Isn't it terrible to be ghosted? Like when you text your friend and you lay out your heart to them, you ask for prayer, you ask for support, and then there's no response for them, and you're just staring at your phone waiting for some response. It's even worse when you can see the red receipt on your text message. I know you saw it, but you're not texting me. What's going on with that? But none of us like to be ghosted or ignored, or forgotten, particularly when we are in need of help. But isn't it true that in times of waiting, it can feel like God himself has ghosted us, that he's ignoring us. We can feel like he's forgotten, that he's, he's turned away from us, that he does not see us, right? He's God. He, he sees all things. He hears all things. We know there's a red receipt on our prayers. He's heard them. So why does he not respond? Why does he not answer? Why is he ghosting us? We, we can imagine that the Israelite people in our text felt that God had ghosted them in the most severe way. 400 years of not hearing from God. 400 years of silence. God, did you block us? Did you unfriend us? Did you change your number? Where are you, God? But church, these chapters in Exodus are intended to remind us very clearly this morning that though in our waiting it may feel like God has forgotten us, he has not forgotten his people. He will never forget. He will always remember. But, but the problem is that we can feel like he's forgotten us because we do not see his activity brightly and clearly on display in our lives. The, the waiting, the, the darkness seems to blind us to his presence and to his activity. The waiting does not come to an end and so it naturally feels like he must not love us anymore. Has he forgotten us? Has, are we not one of his chosen people? But Christian, please hear this this morning. Please hear this loud and clear. Just, just because you cannot see God's activity in your life in the way that you want right now, this does not mean that he is not still very active in your life. No, Christians, we must not require constant visible demonstrations of his activity to believe that he is still active among us. No, God's word tells us again and again and again that at times it is when God feels least present that he is most active. It is when God often feels most distant when he is nearest to us and most wisely and powerfully and lovingly working on our behalf. We can see it right here. Think about what we read in, in the chapters before. Moses' mother, by, by faith, put Moses in a basket to protect him. Listen, I am sure that that did not feel like God was active in that moment. 
God, how come you can't just answer my prayer right now and crush Pharaoh under your hand? How come you can't with a word overturn this edict to kill all the baby boys? Why, God, why do I have to go through this process of trusting you and, and releasing what I want more than anything else in the world today? This little baby boy. There must have been such a tearing that happened in her heart. But she believed that God was active even in the tearing, even in the loss. And church, we know that he was. Because consider what happens. Look again at verse 11. It says, when, one day when Moses had grown up, he grew up in Pharaoh's house. Again, Stephen tells us in Acts chapter 7 that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Think about this. In God's divine wisdom and providence, he places Moses, the future leader of God's people, like a Trojan horse into the house of Pharaoh. Like, like a divine act of espionage, the future deliverer of God's people is planted into the house of the enemy. He's taught by the enemy. He's fed by the enemy. He's protected by the enemy. We assume that he's even loved and cared for by the enemy. God is undermining Pharaoh and Egypt from right under their noses. He's toppling their kingdom from within. But, but you would not know it by looking at this from the outside, would you? From the outside, it looks only bad. Moses' mother is still without her son. She's still waiting. She's still probably crying herself to sleep each night. And then the future leader of God's people is apparently driven away from Egypt. It seems like the, the plan has failed. He's, he's gone for 40 years. What, what is going on? But what appears to be the situation on the outside is emphatically not the situation within. God is doing something good for his, his people, even in the darkest moments. And oftentimes we ask the question, God, I know that you are sovereign. I know that you're in control, but God, why? Why the waiting? Why the need for patience? And we can't always answer that question explicitly, but we know that his ways are good and that we can trust him. Verses 11 to 12 says that Moses went out to his people and looked on their burdens. Now, we don't know how Moses learned to identify with his people. We don't know if this was God speaking to him in a moment about the Hebrews or if Pharaoh's daughter had allowed Moses' mother to stay in contact with him. And as a woman of faith, she instilled a knowledge of God and his people and his heritage. We don't know. But what we do know is that despite spending 40 years in the home of the most powerful man in the world, God instilled a different identity in Moses, and Moses eventually acted on it. This is God's doing under the surface. Verse 12 says that Moses saw a Hebrew, one of his people, being beaten by an Egyptian. And, and so what does Moses do? Well, he, he rises up to defend his brother. Now, friends, we need to say this is not good on his part. There's, there's no godly way to look at this. This was murder on Moses' part. This was not how Moses should have handled the situation. It's a first indicator that he is far from being a perfect man. But what we do see in this is that God had instilled a burden within Moses to be a leader and to be a protector. That, that leadership instinct, it needs to be sanctified by God's grace God's going to do that in Moses' life, but, but God put it there even in its raw form. And we can see it again in verse 17 when he comes to Midian, 
when these shepherds try to, to drive these seven ladies away from the well, what does Moses do? He stands up against the abuse of power. It says that he, he stood up and saved them. That, that phrase that he stood up, that phrase speaks of his godly intentions to protect and to stand up against the oppressed. It speaks, even in the season of waiting, of how God equipped him to stand up against Moses. It speaks of how God himself is standing up for his people. God is not ghosting his people. He is at work even in the unseen ways. Pharaoh finds out about Moses killing this Egyptian, and so he seeks to kill Moses. It's the death penalty for what he's done, but Moses flees. Where does he go? He goes to the land of Midian. Midian was a descendant of Abraham, and so immediately upon reading that, that should pull us immediately back into the story of God's redemption and his chosen people. Midian at that time was the place where Mount Sinai most likely was, and that will play significant in the story of Exodus. But even more than the place, we see that Moses sits down next to a well. You see that in verse 15. And that language should just pop off the page at us. Because back in Genesis, it is often at a well after a long journey that God acts on behalf of his people. Wells are a sign of life and security, but they're also a place in Genesis 24 and in Genesis 29 where God provides for Isaac and for Jacob and gives them wives and ensures that the line of Abraham would continue. So, so to sit down by a well is significant here, and we see immediately that similar things begin to happen. God provides a wife for Moses. Friends, these are whispers of God's providence. These are whispers that our God has not forgotten his people. They are whispers that in your waiting, in Moses' waiting, even as he's excluded and not accepted by his own Hebrew people, even as he is being driven away by his adoptive family, he's alone, he is waiting. God is whispering. God is saying, I'm here. I haven't gone anywhere. I haven't forgotten you. And I'm actively working on your behalf. So sometimes God's activity in our lives, it feels so veiled. It feels so hidden. But that doesn't mean that he is not present. No, church, he's always present and he is always active. Look at verses 23 to 25. The writer of Exodus ends this chapter by not focusing on Moses at all, but rather on God. Look at what it says. During those many Days, many days. The king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. It says their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Listen, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Friends, our God always remembers. We, we are called to pray as his people, not because God forgets, but because he wants our cry uh, to come up to him and for us to express our confidence in his promise. Listen, when it says in this text that God remembered his covenant, that doesn't mean that he had ever forgotten. That that word remembered means that he in this moment, according to his sovereign plan, he chose to honor his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The time had finally come for him to prove himself faithful despite all of the sorrow. The people of Israel continued to cry out. They prayed. They groaned. Sometimes, oh, sometimes our prayers are nothing but a groan. Isn't that true? 
Sometimes in our weakness and in our trial, in our sorrow, we're just groaning before the Lord in our pain. But because of his great mercy and grace, he hears even those groans this morning. He receives those groans and he responds to those groans. Look at these words. It says that their cry for rescue came up to God. The way's open. It says that he heard. He's paying attention. He hears. It says that he remembered. He honored his covenant. It says that he saw the people of Israel and that he knew. Do you feel unseen by God today? Do you feel like he does not know about your situation? Friends, he sees you. He he sees and he knows where you are at. He sees you in the waiting room of life. He sees the pain. He sees the sorrow. He numbers the tears. He, He sees and he knows. So some of you have carried a burden that you have never felt comfortable sharing with anyone. Something done to you, perhaps, that has brought great shame and a feeling of of filth upon you. You've never spoken of it to anyone else. How could you? The shame is too great. God sees you in that place, too. And he knows where you are at, and he hears your crying. You're not alone. God sees you, God knows you, and God knows of your pain. Friends, this is glorious, glorious news. Verses 23 to 25 are the writer's way of coming to us as we sit in the waiting room of life, and it's his way of lifting our eyes up and saying, I know that many days have gone by. I know that your waiting continues. Isn't it true that we're in, when we're in a waiting room, waiting for that appointment, waiting for that surgery, oftentimes our, head, our, our heads are in our hands, but the writer comes to us and said, look with me. Look with me at the God who sees and who knows his people. Look with me at the God who now in this part of the story takes center stage and proves himself faithful to his people. Look with me, he says, that the God who is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. Church, in our waiting, God always, always remembers. The writer invites us to look to the God who hears, who sees, and knows our suffering, and who will always remember his covenant with his people. And listen, as Christians, we are invited by this writer to look to the God who sent his son into this world to fulfill his covenant in the ultimate way. God sent his son Jesus as a little baby into the household of the enemy, Like a Trojan horse, like a divine act of espionage, Jesus came into the darkness to live for us, to die for us, to redeem us. Jesus came, and do you know what he did? He waited with us. He could have come and he could have conquered sin and death in a single day and with a single blow, but he did not. No, he lived among us for 33 years, waiting patiently with us for the moment when he would die on that cruel cross. He could have, when he got on that cross, called a host of angels down to take him immediately from that cross, but he waited there in agony hour after hour after hour. He could have never died. He could have lived forever, but he did die and he waited lifeless in that tomb for three whole days. He waited with us. He groaned with us. 
Hebrews 4 says that he was tempted in every way as we are. He's not unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. He knows how hard it is for you to wait, but he is the ultimate demonstration that God has heard our cry. God has remembered his covenant. He sees and he knows his people. So listen, so that anyone who comes to him, anyone who believes in him, anyone who calls on his name, though life may still feel like a waiting room, that person can know that Jesus is with them in that place and that he will always, always remember to work on their behalf until all of his promises in your life are fulfilled. In the midst of our waiting, God always remembers. Father, we thank you for being a God who never forgets. We love you, we trust in you, and we choose actively now to rest in you and in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Joel Shorey given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.